A new era of global politics has opened, a new era of multipolarity, and the danger of major power conflict is growing. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show, here with host Brian Becker. Today, we're going to begin a series of conversations on The Socialist Program about U.S. foreign policy and what's happening on the domestic political front. We'll talk about what's new, and we're going to discuss a political orientation for what we believe will be a dramatic period for politics inside the United States and globally as the U.S. reorients for major power conflict. As we've said on this show before, the U.S. has major power conflict quite literally outlined in its strategic documents. We're going to start today. I'm going to talk to Brian about the position of the United States in the world at this critical moment with the war in Ukraine ongoing and the U.S. continuing to bang the drums of war against China. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just met with officials from South Korea and Japan, signaling that Biden is trying to shore up relations as the U.S. ramps up the aggression against China. Russia cut its gas production to Europe this week as well, citing intensive economic sanctions from the West amid the war in Ukraine. But Brian, let's start with discussing the war games that have been going on, both with the U.S. and South Korea. They've been running military drills. These were the biggest in the last four years. These were joint military drills, again, the biggest since 2017 that happened in late August. And then Similarly, Russia and China carried out major war exercises. Let's talk about these war exercises and these war games, you know, on both sides here, as well as the fact that the U.S. also right now is at the 2022 Seoul Defense Dialogue. This started just yesterday on Wednesday, and it's got 54 countries and organizations, including the U.S. and NATO. And essentially, the U.S.'s whole goal of being in this meeting is to try to bring NATO, keywords the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, North Atlantic, to the Asia-Pacific. That's their goal of being at this meeting. Let's talk about this general situation, both of these war games and the meeting that the U.S. is currently at in Seoul. Thank you, Nicole. It's good to be back. I was in Brazil for almost a week at a meeting organized by the International People's Assembly, IPA, hosted by the MST, the Rural Workers or Peasant Movement, Landless Peasant Movement of Brazil. I had an opportunity to speak there about the world situation, bringing the same ideas, same assessment, same analysis that we're providing for our audience to that meeting. And it's good to be back. It's good to be right here. We're in Washington, D.C., Nicole. And of course, after Labor Day, focus turns towards the midterm elections. People are thinking Democrats or Republicans. We want to talk about what the big picture is in politics. And the big picture is, of course, what's going on globally. And I think it's appropriate that we're starting with an assessment of these new major war so-called games. They're not really games. They're not funny. Those are being or had taken place in the Pacific. We also want to talk about 
in the coming conversations what's going on domestically because politically inside the United States, we are moving also to a period of intensifying confrontation. And we're going to talk about that. But yes, the U.S., for the first time in four years, undertook massive war games, military exercises with the military of South Korea. And the South Korean military, even though the South Korean economy is a very big economy, perhaps the 10th biggest in the world, South Korea is in many ways a client state. It's been occupied by the United States since 1945. It's still occupied today by the United States with tens of thousands of troops. And for the first time in four years, massive war exercises that simulate the invasion and destruction of North Korea were undertaken. And tens of thousands of troops, thousands of pieces of military equipment, large naval destroyers, battleship groups, aircraft carriers, fighter jets, all of them were employed to carry out the simulated invasion and destruction of North Korea. And as we talked about in an earlier show, the war games, again, I keep putting air quotes around the word games because there's nothing funny about them. They're not really play. They're not games. They're simulating war. They also, as we talked about, simulate the execution, the assassination of the head of state of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, the leader, head of state of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, is assassinated in these war games. So as some of the Western media commentary has described, the, the North Koreans, for some reason, take the war exercises seriously. They said in some of the media reports that Kim Jong-un took the simulated assassination personally. Oh, that would be a big surprise. Anyway, this is a big escalation, Nicole. And I want to help the audience go back and remember that the U.S. did this twice a year for decades. And each time the U.S. did it with South Korea, the North Korean military has to fully mobilize because they don't know. You never know when another massive military operation is taking place right nearby and simulating the invasion and destruction of your country and the liquidation of your leadership, you don't know whether it can play out as a real war, a real invasion. And given the fact that North Korea had been invaded before, had been bombed before, that millions of Koreans did die at the hands of a U.S.-led military intervention between 1950 and 53, it requires the North Korean government, a government that's already scarce with resources, to mobilize all of its military and all of the attendant resources that go on with a military mobilization to counter the war games and the war exercises. Now, this is such a, an important sticking point for the North Koreans that during the Obama administration, they said to Obama, look, if you agree not to carry out any more war exercises like this that simulate the invasion and destruction of our country, we won't go forward with nuclear tests, meaning we will not test new nuclear weapons. And without testing nuclear weapons, you can't advance nuclear weapons. The North Koreans offered the Obama administration to suspend to have a moratorium on nuclear testing, 
in return or in exchange for not doing the military exercises, to which the Obama administration said no. It was only when Donald Trump agreed to begin this diplomatic dance, this exercise with North Korea that was in the first, towards the end of the first year of the Trump administration at the end of 2017, the U.S. said, okay, we're going to declare a moratorium on military exercises, these war games. Then, and only then, did North Korea reciprocate by saying, okay, we're not going to do any more nuclear tests as long as you don't do military exercises. And Kim Jong-un met with Donald Trump twice, once in Singapore and then the next year in Hanoi. And at the first meeting in Singapore, and that was in June 2018, they signed the Singapore Declaration. And I want to read again. We've done it before on our show, but it's worth repeating. Here are the terms, the four points that Trump and Kim Jong-un agreed to, which led, one, to a suspension of, or a moratorium at least, of these kind of war games that simulate the destruction of North Korea on the U.S.-South Korean side. And on the North Korean side, it meant that there was no more tests of nuclear weapons. Their nuclear weapons program was put on hold, essentially. And there haven't been any nuclear tests for the last several years. But here's what the declaration says. Point number one, the United States and the DPRK commit to establish new U.S.-DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity. Number two, the United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. And point three, reaffirms that the April 27, 2018 Panmunjom Declaration that the DPRK commits to work towards the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So what's important there is point number one was not denuclearization. Point number one was to establish a new peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, and that this peace regime was based on the desire of the peoples of the two countries to have better, that is normal, that is peaceful relations with each other. And if that could be established, then the DPRK committed towards working towards the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So here we are four years later, the U.S. basically stopped that negotiating process, just like the U.S. stopped or ripped up the Iran nuclear arms deal that Obama had signed. Trump ripped that up when he came in. And as a consequence, the U.S. is now carrying out massive war games against North Korea. And North Korea, Nicole, according to news reports, is preparing to have another major nuclear weapons test. And these nuclear weapons tests by North Korea include hydrogen bomb nuclear tests. So if you care about nuclear weapons, if you think nuclear weapons should be a thing of the past, if you believe in peace, if you believe in disarmament on the nuclear front, getting rid of nuclear weapons, then you'd have to say that the failure of the United States to follow through on the Singapore Declaration and provide real peaceful negotiations, in other words, a detente, a rapprochement, a reconciliation, call it what you will, an end to the Korean War. Let's call it that, the end of the Korean War, which began in June 1950 in the military 
side of that war, the military conflict ended with an armistice July 27th, 1953. But there's been no peace treaty. The North Koreans want a peace treaty. And if the U.S. gives them that in normal relations, then North Korea is committed to carrying out denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula. And that is precisely what the U.S. has decided to scuttle. So in a way, we are back to square one. But of course, we're in a different world. We're in a very, very different world. We described, as you described in the introduction, Nicole, the era of multipolarity replacing the era of unipolar domination by the United States was inaugurated basically on February 24th, 2022, when Russia protesting NATO's commitment to integrate Ukraine into NATO and to expand NATO right up to Russia's borders invaded the Ukraine. And that was, of course, the end of one era, an era that began with the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. And we have now entered a new era. And the era, the era of an open challenge to U.S. unipolar domination is also premised on what can only be described as a growing unmanaged rivalry between the United States and NATO, its NATO allies on the one side, and Russia and China on the other side. And of course, there are governments like North Korea, like Iran, of course, Cuba and Venezuela, which are also the targets of U.S. imperialist designs and machinations. And as a consequence, they're not constituting a block, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela. It's not a block. It's not like the old socialist block. But they do have something in common. They have a congruence of interests. And you can see that is playing out on many, many fronts. Thanks, Brian. Let's talk to you about the war games that China and Russia participated in. That was just a few days ago where Russian President Vladimir Putin inspected a military exercise that multiple countries, including China and India, were engaged in. And these military drills were in Russia. What does this indicate? What does this mean? And how does it essentially compare to or, you know, does it balance out essentially the U.S.-South Korean drills? What does this show us, especially about what you were just saying about multipolarity and how I think there are many who are saying that the war in Ukraine and this new era does mean that there will be a multipolar world soon or that a multipolar world is coming? You know, do these war games happening simultaneously? Is this an example of that? Oh, definitely. I mean, the fact that Russia and China met right before at the Olympics in China and signed that 5,000-word-long declaration where they said they had an alliance without limits, that was February 4th, 2022. And 20 days later, Russia invades Ukraine. I'm not saying that China was supportive of the invasion. They haven't condemned the invasion, certainly. And they obviously hold NATO and the U.S. responsible for the crisis that led to Russia's invasion. So I'm not suggesting that China is openly or even you know quietly supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think, in fact, Russia's invasion of Ukraine puts China in a corner in many ways. It complicates things for China because China also wants good relations with Europe and good relations with Eastern Europe, Ukraine even under Zelensky, was part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But the point is that Russia and China were forging a relationship, and they described it as a relationship without limits in this 5,000-word communique. And 20 days later, Russia invades Ukraine. 
And here we are six months later, and Russia and China are carrying out joint military, large-scale military exercises. These are in the Pacific. And these exercises also involve 50,000 troops. And India is also participating, which is very interesting because, of course, there is a struggle, an ongoing geostrategic, geographic, and it's a multifaceted struggle between India and China. And India and China have fought several wars in the post-World War II era, the last one being in 1962. But nonetheless, India, while it has strong relations with the United States, is involved in these military exercises with Russia and China. And I think that you can't not notice the certain symmetry of what's going on. The U.S. is carrying out massive military exercises targeting DPRK. And not simultaneously, but almost simultaneously, Russia, China, and India carrying out military exercises. But the largest bulk of the forces is China and Russia. And the fact that Putin attended these exercises is extremely noteworthy. Again, what we're seeing is the development of a certain alliance based on a mutual problem, a mutual foe that Russia and China and other countries have, and that other nations in Africa and Asia and in Latin America who are not camp followers of Russia or China also want to become or are independent countries. And they see that if the world is sort of dividing into a multipolar world, they want to take advantage of the multipolarity for space meaning political space, so that if the Americans and the Europeans, for instance, sanction them or threaten them, there's another part of the world that they can do trade with, that they can get aid from, that they can have diplomatic relations with, that they can carry out military cooperation that's beneficial. What really happened, big picture, is the U.S. overreach, the U.S. exercise of unipolar domination including and insisting on NATO's expansion right up to Russia's border, provoked the Russians to act. And again, we haven't said we approve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We never have done that. But we've always tried to place it in context. The Russians didn't just wake up on February 24th and say, oh, you know what, let's invade Ukraine. This is the culmination of a process that began with the 2014 coup that overthrew a neutral government in Ukraine, the new government that was loyal to the U.S. and to the EU and wanted to be integrated into NATO, meaning shattering any possibility of neutrality. That really escalated the situation. And then the relentless push by NATO to the east up against Russia's border and creating in in Ukraine not formal membership in NATO, but de facto membership, meaning that Ukraine is being armed with heavier and heavier weapons and ultimately will be a staging ground for U.S. nuclear and conventional missiles that target Russia. Whether Ukraine is formally in or not in Ukraine, the same process was happening. You know, these countries, the countries I mentioned who are targeted by the U.S., They see in Russia's action, even if they don't approve of it, even if they're worried about it, and many of them are, they understand that it's a consequence of U.S. policy. And our position is that the U.S. overreach towards Russia 
and I believe the U.S. deliberately created the crisis and was not unhappy, was in fact happy about Russia's decision to invade Ukraine, the U.S. has pushed these other countries sort of into a relationship of cooperation with each other. And you can see, and as we said earlier, when you tabulate the number of countries that voted with or against the U.S.-sponsored General Assembly resolution condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, most of the countries of the world voted with the United States. But if you look at the populations of the countries that voted either no or abstain, meaning that they didn't take a position, that's the majority of the people of the world. And those are the people in the so-called third world, and they're in governments and countries that want to be independent. So they see multipolarity as a way that space has opened up so that they're not completely dictated to by U.S. imperialism. But for our point of view, from the point of view of what we've said here on the socialist program, and in my own speeches, my own documents, my own writings, I've also emphasized that multipolarity should not be the goal of the socialist movement. Just having many countries in open rivalry with each other in the world, while we appreciate that it has created space, political space and economic space and diplomatic space for countries that are targeted by U.S. imperialism, we also recognize that we've been in eras of multipolarity before, like the era before World War I, and it led to World War I, or the multipolarity before World War II and the period between World War I and World War II. What happened there? It resulted in global war. The unmanaged multipolar rivalries led to global war. And in fact, if you look at the trajectory and orientation of U.S. imperialism in NATO, it's to continually expand NATO. As you said, Nicole, in the beginning, they're in Korea now building the Asian component with 54 countries of NATO. So NATO is now becoming global. It's global NATO. It was NATO that invaded Afghanistan in 2001 and maintained the war. It was NATO that bombed Libya in 2011. Libya is not part of the North Atlantic either. So the U.S. is making NATO, global NATO, no longer just the North Atlantic or Europe in the United States. And it's accelerating military production, accelerating military training, military protocols, trying to militarize outer space, gain nuclear supremacy and primacy. The U.S. is preparing for World War III right now. And having a multipolar world and a series of unmanaged rivalries doesn't make that less likely. As socialists, we want to oppose U.S. imperialism, not with the idea of multipolarity as our goal, but with the idea of socialism as our goal. Our goal is to have a world without war, a world that doesn't need militarism, a world that's based on the respect and equality and cooperation between nations rather than endless conflict. And so we have to understand that multipolarity, while it has negative features in general and some positive features for the countries that are targeted by U.S. imperialism, it's not the solution to the danger of imperialist war, which we consider to be fundamental, foundational to modern day capitalism. War, as Lenin pointed out, is inevitable unless we get rid of capitalism. So our goal isn't multipolarity. Our goal is to get rid of capitalism and imperialism and to replace that world with a socialist world.
Thanks, Brian. And you talked a little bit about your visit to Brazil and some of the documents you've been writing. I wanted to bring a little bit more of that into the conversation. When you were in Brazil, you were attending a meeting of the International People's Assembly. And while you were there, you made a significant presentation about this, about the orientation of U.S. imperialism in this current moment. And it follows essentially a document that you wrote before the Fifth Party Congress of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And the document is called Understanding the New Era of Global Politics. There are a number of, I think, very important points and major theses in the document that I'd like to ask you about. And you've been talking already about one of them, about multipolarity and you know how there are many on the left who are excited, who are seeing a new multipolar world possibly come to light. And I think that is obviously very understandable. That's in some ways could be a very exciting thing. It's understandable why people might feel that way. But But you've addressed, I think, already some of the limitations of that, not only the limitations, but essentially why that's actually not the solution to this issue, to the issue of U.S. imperialism, to the issue of imperialist wars. And I wanted to read a little bit from this document to you and get your thoughts on one component, because in the document it says, multipolarity was dominant prior to World War I and World War II, as you just mentioned. The consequence of multipolarity within the context of capitalism and imperialism was two global wars. Nearly 20 million people died in World War I, and as many as 90 million died in World War II. Multipolarity among the capitalist powers led to unmanaged rivalries and ultimately two worldwide military conflagrations. So we've talked about multipolarity and its limitations. Let's talk about bipolarity, especially in the second half of the 20th century. The document goes on, quote, In the entire period between 1945 and 1991, world politics had been reshaped by the creation of bipolar power between two rival camps. One camp was led by the Soviet Union and the other was led by the U.S. On the surface, this struggle, this rivalry, appeared to be a contest between nations. But from our point of view, this was a struggle between classes that took the form of a struggle between nations. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant in that writing and why this is important? Yeah, so I, I want to go back, and I, I'm glad you mentioned this and focus on this, Nicole, because you know language is important. It needs to be precise from a Marxist point of view, from a socialist point of view. Language is important because we're doing combat all the time with the ideas of the bourgeoisie, the ideas of the dominant class, the ideas of the ruling class. As Marx pointed out, the ideas of society in general, are the ideas of its ruling class, because it's the ruling class that gets to you know, retain power and possession over the instruments that mold public opinion. You know, In feudal times, it was largely the church. In modern times, it's the media, the mass media, the corporate-owned media, but also religious institutions, educational institutions, the institutions of society, which are dominated by the bourgeoisie, by the ruling class, they inform public opinion. They create public opinion. They shape it. The dominant narrative shapes it. And as a consequence, you know, we have to, we who are socialists and who are fighting for a different world, a better world, we have to do in the the battle of ideas, we have to use precise language and persuasive language in order to sort of compete with or overcome the problems of bourgeois propaganda. So, Like right now, a lot of people are using the language of the Cold War, or is there a new Cold War between the United States and Russia and the United States and China? 
And we understand the language and why people don't want a new Cold War because the old Cold War was so bad. But the words Cold War don't really mean anything. What they really signified in popular discourse, in the popular vernacular, was that instead of a hot war between the United States and the Soviet Union, which looked likely in 1946, 47, 48, instead of it becoming World War III and a very hot war, it sort of settled into a certain equilibrium where the major powers over time signed nuclear arms deals, other weapons arrangements. There was a period of summit diplomacy between the heads of state in the Soviet Union and the United States. There were certain protocols or guardrails that were established so that this rivalry between the United States or the camp led by the United States on one hand and the camp led by the Soviet Union on the other hand didn't become an unmanaged rivalry like World War III. So this Cold War meant there wasn't a hot war between the major powers. But the Cold War wasn't cold if you were Koreans. Four million Koreans died in the Cold War. So that was a very hot war. The war was fought more or less on the periphery. It was fought in Korea. It was fought in Vietnam. It was fought against those movements in countries in the colonized or semi-colonized parts of the world that were trying to become free and independent and sovereign. So in Iran, in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, in Cuba before the Cuban Revolution, U.S. imperialism and the capitalists from Europe and the West imposed through very harsh military means and occupations and invasions and assassinations a nonstop war, hot war, against people from the Congo to Iran to Guatemala and everywhere in between. And instead of using the language that the imperialists adopted, the Cold War, we want to use precise language, which is what was really happening at the end of World War II, which was there was a class war that masked itself as a war between nations and parts of that war were hot, meaning open military conflict, and parts of it were regulated and cold, but it was a class war. So you can see this and how this was a turning point, a new point, a distinct point in history. When the Korean War began in June 25th, 1950, that was at the beginning really a civil war. There were communists led by the Workers' Party of Korea, led by Kim Il-sung, representing the working class and the poor peasants, and who had been fighting against Japanese imperialism for many decades, which had dominated Korea. And on the other side, the government of South Korea had been installed by the United States. It was made up of those elements who had collaborated with Japanese colonialism in Korea. They were the puppets of imperialism, basically. They created a second regime on the Korean Peninsula. There was a North Korea led by communists and a South Korea led by the imperialists and the puppets of imperialism. And that conflict broke out in June 1950, just as it eventually broke out in Vietnam, also divided between a, a socialist or communist North and a pro-capitalist puppet client regime in the South. It broke out in June 1950, 
And all of the countries of the world that were led by socialist governments supported North Korea. So China supported North Korea. The Soviet Union supported North Korea. East Germany, Bulgaria, Poland, Yugoslavia, Albania. I'm forgetting a few. Czechoslovakia. All of the socialist bloc countries supported North Korea. And all of the imperialist and capitalist nations supported South Korea. So on this little tiny part of the planet called the Korean Peninsula, you saw this class arrangement between the forces of communism, meaning governments that had come to power through worker and peasant revolutions, versus the old order, the capitalist order, the imperialist order, where all of the governments were still dominated by corporate and capitalist bankers and corporate industrialists. And everybody took sides based on class. It appeared to be a war between two nations, between two governments. But what we were saying is that it was really a war between two classes. And this was a new situation in world politics where the working class, for the first time, had power not just in one country, as happened in the Soviet Union in 1917, but by 1949 with the Chinese Revolution, the working class and peasantry, the socialist movement held state power in two-fifths of the world. Two-fifths of the world's population lived in countries where the government was ruled by communist parties. And so you had this new relationship of class forces on the global scale where the capitalists had state power on one side and on another side, still the minority, but a very big minority of the people of the world were in governments or in countries where the governments were led by socialist and communist forces. And so the new era after World War II was a bipolar era between the two classes, but for the first time, the class of workers and peasants wasn't simply an oppressed class, it was also a class that had state power. And so U.S. imperialism was devoted, 100% dedicated to ending, to rolling back, to contracting or eventually overthrowing the communist governments that did exist or the future governments in other capitalist countries that would come to power with the support of the socialist camp now that it had grown in size and its economic power, its military power, its diplomatic capability. The revolutions that spread after World War II created a new world situation, which wasn't really a Cold War. It was a global class war, which included hot conflicts and colder conflicts, but there were class conflicts nonetheless. And it was based on the strength of the socialist camp with a vision towards a world without war, a world without nuclear weapons, that there became a sort of check on U.S. imperialism's fundamental and foundational drive towards global war. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the socialist governments that were allies of the Soviet Union, meaning after the breakup of the socialist camp, there were still some governments that were led by communist parties. That was China, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, North Korea, and Cuba. The bloc, the camp was disintegrated. And it was during that era that post-Soviet era, that unipolar U.S. domination becomes dominant. And the U.S. is, you know, sort of telling the whole rest of the world, you either listen to us, you follow our lead, you get on your knees 
and accept whatever we say to you on economic policy, military policy, diplomatic policy, unless you get on your knees and act as a supplicant, we will destroy you using either military or economic means. And so what's happened now is that Russia, which had been sort of on its knees after the collapse of the Soviet Union, emerged again under Putin's leadership as a major power. It's not a communist government. It doesn't have any socialist aspirations. It's not seeking to support leftist movements anywhere in the world. It has none of those considerations that the old Soviet government did have. And yet, because it exists as an independent and strong country and has an alliance with China, which is also very big, even though the Russians are not led by a communist party and the Chinese are, they have a mutual interest, which is not to be dictated to by the United States. And so we have the replacement of the bipolar world with a unipolar world and now a return to multipolarity of a new type. We don't know where this all ends, but we do know that U.S. imperialism, based on the reorganization and reorientation and adoption of a new U.S. military doctrine in 2018, is preparing for major power conflict. And they're doing it, Nicole, on the planet Earth, on the ground, on the high seas. They're even doing it in outer space. They're looking for primacy because they intend to be at war with Russia and China at some point. And for those of us who are in the peace movement, in the anti-war movement, in the socialist movement, our demands must be that we want to see an end to capitalism and imperialism. We want a new government in the United States that's dedicated to a different set of economic priorities and a different set of values and that gets rid of the danger and the scourge of war. But the opposition to U.S. imperialism ultimately can't be multipolarity, meaning other major powers preparing for conflict, even though that's clearly what's happening. That too can lead to a global disaster. And nobody wants that, or certainly we don't want that. And I'm sure China and Russia don't want that either. Maybe some of the lunatics in the Pentagon or the military industrial complex or the far right, which is not a small group within the U.S. ruling class, maybe they're devoted to that. But most of the people in the world don't want World War III. They're not excited about it. They don't see it as a business opportunity. And as a consequence, we have this big challenge, but one I think we can succeed with which is to provide a different vision for the world, not multipolarity as the antithesis to capitalism, but socialism as the antithesis to capitalism and the opposition, the real opposition to imperialist war. Brian, those are really important points. And I think it's extremely useful to have this broader historical assessment and perspective to really understand the current conflict, the Ukraine war, and how we came to this point, especially with Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. There are some on the left who are saying that U.S. imperialism and NATO on the one hand and Russia on the other hand are both imperialist powers. They're equal imperialists. They're arguing that U.S. imperialism and NATO are one block. They're one block of imperialism and that there is another block of imperialism and that one is led by Russia. So again, like World War I, where different imperialist blocs and powers went to war against each other, you know, this part of the left is saying it's the same thing. The different imperialists are fighting and the left needs to denounce both, both blocs. But in the document that I mentioned earlier, you wrote, quote, drawing an equal sign between U.S. imperialism and NATO 
And so-called Russian imperialism is not only a profound misappraisal of the war in Ukraine, but it politically disarms the working class and the broader population, unquote. Could you just talk a little bit more about this idea that we have two competing imperialist blocks? I mean, very obviously, even just from that one sentence, you disagree with this view. But this is a really key point, I think, to discuss and really fully understand what's happening here and what these dynamics really are. Right. So a section of the left, especially in the European left, but it's elsewhere, but mainly in Europe and to some extent inside the United States, the argument was that the world is divided between different camps of imperialism. So Russia is an imperialist country. China is an imperialist country. To the extent that they have a conflict with the United States or with U.S. imperialism and the European imperialists, it's just an inter-imperialist conflict. And as a consequence, the working class and the working class parties should denounce both. So presumably... If you were a Russian leftist in Russia, you would be denouncing the Russian invasion of Ukraine, just like if you were an an American leftist, you'd be denouncing the U.S. invasion, say, of Afghanistan or Iraq. I think this misses the boat. Imperialism emerged as a global system in the last part of the 19th century. And after World War II, the imperialist system and the various component parts of the system were saved or resuscitated by U.S. imperialism. So European capitalism rebounded only because U.S. imperialism using the Marshall Plan and endless resources, U.S. imperialism revived world capitalism, the imperialist system, and U.S. imperialism became the anchor to that system. That explains also why Europe and the Japanese capitalist class are still basically supplicants to U.S. imperialism. U.S. imperialism literally revived their systems and their power as a ruling class. After World War II, unlike after World War I, U.S. imperialism did not try to humiliate and defeat or crush its enemies, meaning Japanese and German imperialism. German imperialism at the end of World War I was humiliated and defeated by the Versailles Treaty. They were sanctioned. There were reparations paid by Germany to the other capitalist countries. Germany was left in ruins. That's one of the reasons why the German economy was so weak and why fascism grew so strong inside of Germany. After World War II, the United States basically took the defeated ruling classes in Germany and Japan, revived them, and gave them access to the global market. Didn't sanction them, didn't blockade them, gave them access to the world market. So those ruling classes in the defeated enemy countries could grow strong again and become rich again and or retain their wealth. The new quid pro quo was that these governments would then become junior partners to U.S. imperialism, and they had a common global foe, which was revolution. The common foe was communism. The common foe was socialism. They all had something as property-owning ruling classes, something in common, which is if the working class and the socialists or communists came to power, it would be the end of their class rule, the end of their power and their privilege, the end of their fortunes. So there was this new quid pro quo after World War II And the U.S. revived the imperialist system on that basis. U.S. was the leader, the hegemon, 
But, you know, it wasn't by pauperizing all the other capitalist countries. It was by, in fact, sharing the loot with them and making them political and military junior partners to U.S. imperialism. That is how global imperialism was reshaped after World War II. And we have to have a historical understanding of imperialism, taking a few quotes out of context from Lenin's book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, about who exports capital and who doesn't. That doesn't change anything. You have to see the emergence of a global capitalist system, which is what Lenin emphasized, that capitalism, imperialism wasn't a policy. Imperialism was a system. It was monopoly capitalism at a certain stage of its development, what Lenin called the highest stage of its development. That global system was led by the United States, anchored by the United States, but the other former colonial imperialist powers were revived and made junior partners. On the other side was the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. The Soviet Union had a planned economy, no private capitalist class. It was public ownership of the means of production and a centrally planned economy all the way up until the destruction of the Soviet Union in 1991. China had been a major economic power up until the beginning of the 19th century, but because of imperialist intervention and humiliation and occupation and division and later sanctions, China was devastated. China's march forward was basically stopped, halted. And China became a very, very poor country. And it had a revolution in 1949 led by communists against the imperialist system. And at that time, the People's Republic of China had a million people starving to death every, every year. China was so poor that it's only been in the last decade that the Chinese government could claim the victory of eliminating extreme poverty for 850 million people. I mean, just remember, everybody, the U.S. has a population of 330 million for the whole country. China just announced that they eliminated extreme poverty for 850 million people, double the size, more than double the size of the U.S. population. And extreme poverty is defined by the United Nations as living on less than $2 a day. The Chinese define it as living on $2.3 a day. So they lifted 850 million people out of extreme poverty just now. Now, at the same time, Russia and the Soviet Union, let's take Russia, which was the anchoring republic of the Soviet Union. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the publicly owned property was looted by an oligarchic class of billionaires who were the friends of the West, beloved by the West. They had their investments in the West. They set up shop in the United States, in London, elsewhere in the West. It was basically the looting of a socialist economy by this class of pirates and looters, the oligarchic billionaires in Russia. And Russia became so poor and poverty so great that this, what had been the second biggest economy in the world and an economy where the working class by international standards had a certainly a relatively affluent standard of living. I mean, it had everything that you need to live, free healthcare, free education. You had limited housing, but it was all very affordable housing. In other words, you had what it took to live. You had a guaranteed employment or income by the state. That country had been devastated by the destruction of the Soviet Union and the takeover of the country 
by the Western imperialist corporations who were working with the oligarchic billionaires. And they destroyed Russia. Russia's life expectancy went down seven years in seven years during the 1990s. That was the greatest loss of life or reduction in life expectancy in peacetime, I think, in any period in human history. And under Putin, gradually, Putin didn't get rid of the oligarchs, but he sort of disciplined them. The state got back on its feet. The state wasn't just being completely looted by the oligarchic billionaire capitalists in the West. And so as a consequence of Putin's policies, which again were pro-capitalist bourgeois policies, but certainly in a country that had was emerging from devastation, Russia was able to, quote, get back on its feet. And for a while, Russia was invited to the table of the imperialists. The G7 major imperialist countries became the G8. But as soon as Russia had a conflict with the United States, it was disinvited from the G7 and became like a, an uninvited guest at the dinner party of the imperialists. And so you have Russia now back on its feet and fighting a war in Ukraine. Now, why did Russia go to Ukraine? Is Ukraine far away? Did it have vast resources that the Russian oligarchic capitalists wanted to seize control of? Is that what caused this war? I mean, that's ridiculous. The reason Russia went to war with Ukraine is, one, the U.S. expanded NATO to the east right up on Russia's border. The United States supported, actually instigated, orchestrated, choreographed, and led a fascist-led coup d'etat in February 2014 against the Yanukovych government. And that government, which had pledged to be neutral, was replaced by a government that said that they were committed to joining NATO. And then that government also went to war against Russian-speaking people in the eastern part of the country, a war, a so-called civil war that took the lives of 14,000 people in the eastern part of Ukraine. 14,000 died between February 2014 and Russia's invasion. I mean, those people are dead. They're dead. They were killed by a pro-U.S. government, a government that wanted to be part of NATO a government that insisted that Ukraine would be used as a staging ground for advanced Western imperialist missiles, conventional and nuclear, targeting Russia right up on Russia's borders. And the Russians had been saying for months, don't do this. Back off. Make Ukraine neutral. We have legitimate security interests. We need a security guarantee. To which the United States said, no, 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 we're not going to negotiate with you at all. All of your demands are non-starters. You can't tell Ukraine whether it is going to join NATO or not, and you can't tell us who's going to be a part of NATO or not. We dictate the terms, not you, not Russia. And under those circumstances, Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, we said we don't approve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There were other options. Now, that doesn't mean we were like rubber stamping Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We weren't saying, great, Russia's invaded Ukraine. In fact, we said, this is a terrible tragedy. Russia and Ukraine were sister republics inside a socialist planned economy. They enjoyed together the fruits of socialism. They weren't at war with each other. The idea that Russians and Ukrainians are killing each other, we said, is a terrible tragedy. But we located the responsibility for the crisis not with Russian imperialism or the so-called expansionist designs of a new capitalist class 
in Russia, but rather U.S. imperialism and its European imperialist allies taking advantage of Russia's weakness in Europe was expanding NATO all over the eastern and central part of Europe, basically making all of those areas a neo-colony of the West and making them a staging ground, an advanced position for NATO military equipment and operations. Obviously, the Russian motivation was not to, quote, take over Ukraine on the road to taking over the rest of Europe. It was defensive. The Russian government did not carry out the invasion of Ukraine on behalf of the expansionist desires of Russia's billionaire oligarchs. In fact, most of the oligarchs, there's not that many of them, but most of them have their wealth tied up in Western countries. They're the victims of sanctions. They're the ones whose wealth has been compromised by this military intervention. This wasn't on behalf of the expansionist designs of Russian capitalism. This was a defensive reaction to NATO's eastward expansion and the obvious conclusion that the Russian government and the Russian military had come to, which was that unless they took action now, Ukraine was going to become a member of NATO, either formal or de facto, and that Ukraine would permanently be a staging ground for advanced weapons targeting Russia. I think the Russians thought that the Ukrainian government would fall very quickly. They were wrong about that. I think they thought that political forces inside of Ukraine who are for neutrality, and there are, there are many political forces that want to have good relations with Russia, or did at least, they felt that they would be the new government. And on that basis, there'd be a pro-Russian or at least a neutral Ukrainian government that would not allow NATO expansion to take place, not allow Ukrainian territory to be used as a staging ground for advanced weapons against Russia. It wasn't to satisfy the expansionist needs of the oligarchic billionaire class in Russia. It was for the reason that they wanted to have either a neutral or pro-Russian government in Ukraine, meaning a government that would not allow NATO to use that country as a staging ground for weapons that posed an existential threat to Russia. Whether you agree with the tactic of Russia going into Ukraine or not, it's not hard to understand in the historical context that this is not the same as the imperialist wars in Vietnam or in Afghanistan or in Korea or the imperialist takeover of Africa, that this is on Russia's border and that this is designed to protect Russia going forward because once NATO and U.S. missiles were on Ukrainian territory at Russia's border, those missiles would never be removed. And so Russia would never have a day of peace going forward or a day of peace and security. So we completely discount the idea that this is motivated by two imperialist camps, Russia and China on one. It's an ahistorical explanation. It doesn't look at those countries in their evolution or in the case of Russia, its devolution following the Soviet Union. And it completely misjudges and misunderstands and as a consequence politically disarms the working class about who's really to blame for this terrible war that's taking place in Ukraine. Brian, I think that's incredibly important context and a, a very, very useful analysis of 
not only what's going on now, but essentially what's led us up to this point and how we need to move forward against U.S. imperialism. We're going to continue this conversation next week because there's still so many other elements to talk about. But for now, thank you so much for getting on and for helping our audience understand a lot more of these very, very important dynamics. For our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for supporting our show and for continuing to listen and to share and to enjoy this content. We could not do this without you all, without the supporters that we have, and especially without the monthly Patreon subscribers who essentially keep this show running. We could not do this without you. If you're listening and you enjoy this show or you learn from it or you appreciate it, please, please help us do your part. Go to patreon.com slash the socialist program where you can sign up for a monthly stipend to help us continue this show and continue this work. $5 a month, incredibly helpful, and it'll get you access to our patrons only once monthly seminars with Brian. But if you can give more than that, we really appreciate that too. $10, $20, $50 a month. What you can do is incredibly helpful for us. So again, thank you so much. We'll have a follow-up conversation with Brian next week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.